Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. The first sponsorship on Warden's Watch is Trail Runner Wireless Internet, available in Coas County and Washington County, Maine. High-speed internet for rural areas. And they're the company I work for, other than podcasting. So, and I, I thank you for their support. Uh, this is high-speed internet r- rural areas, making my podcast happen and making businesses happen in remote places, as well as bringing technology to you folks when you live out in the country. Please go to mytrailrunner.com and like the page on Facebook as well. That would help them a lot and help me to continue Warden's Watch. Guidefitter.com. Guidefitter, bridging you to the outdoors while providing a quality platform for guides and outfitters for you to select from. Guidefitter is the best place to get discounts on gear if you're an outdoor professional. As a game warden, I'm a member of the Outdoor Government Program, which has over 80 quality brands to get discounts from. It's free to join. Yes, free to join. And all you need to do is prove that you're an active outdoor government employee. There are all kinds of products available apparel, boots, archery equipment, optics, backpacks, cameras, watches, ammo, anything, you name it. And while you're there, check out the articles, information, and stories that you'll be inspired from. So before you head out to work in the outdoors or start your next outdoor adventure, check out guidefitter.com and get discounts on your everyday or every so often outdoor equipment. This is Game Warden Wayne Saunders for Guidefitter. RodGeeks.com. RodGeeks is a company that designs and builds fishing rods. They are a partner with St. Croix Rods and have been building fishing rods since 2008. They use St. Croix's expertise in all their rod designs so you can trust the rods. The RG42 is a one-piece travel rod. performs like a much longer rod but is compact enough to keep anywhere so you can fish anytime. They offer it as a kit that includes rod, reel, fishing line, case, pliers, and a tackle tray. Put your favorite baits in the tray and you have everything you need to go fishing. It may look unconventional, but this rod really works. Pick up an RG42 kit today and you won't regret it. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experience of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion 
commitment and the stories of those men and women that call themselves Game Wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. Episode 5, interview with Conservation Officer Graham Courtney, Seacoast Game Warden. And it's a whole lot different being a Seacoast Game Warden. You have all the aspects of being an inland Game Warden, and you have the Seacoast to be responsible for, which adds a whole new dynamic into being a Game Warden. It has the sea life, which is commercially fished and recreationally fished, on top of all your inland responsibilities with deer, bear, wildlife conflicts. And this is what we're going to hear from Graham today, is that the challenges... But with the challenges come a lot of extra help. Wardens from around the state of New Hampshire come down and help Graham with what we call the JEA, Joint Enforcement Agreement. So, And that's with the federal government. So we have a a grant that actually helps us out because we extend ourselves beyond our three-mile limit. Each state has a three-mile limit. That's what our limit is for coastal work. Beyond three miles, it becomes the federal government's responsibility, but the federal government doesn't have enough people to enforce all the rules that they make. So they contract with states. So they contract with New Hampshire, they contract with Maine, they contract with Massachusetts. And uh, as we go around the country to do interviews with a lot of those states that have large coastal aspects, we're going to hear about JEA, the Joint Enforcement Agreement. So, and that's just having states help the federal government enforce the regulations to make sure our commercial fisheries are sustainable is is the long-term plan. There's a lot of controversy around that. Uh, The biologists say one thing, the fishermen say another. But, you know, when it's all said and done, I think we have the same goal in mind. The fishermen want to keep on fishing. They want to have a sustainable resource so they can fish. And the biologists want a sustainable resources so they can fish. And in between there is the enforcement. In order, you can make all the rules you want, but without enforcement, you're not going to have an effective management plan. And that's where conservation officers, federal agents uh, come into play when it comes into federal waters. So that's you're going to hear about that from Grant Courtney. You're going to hear about that from some other wardens as we go around the coast. Uh, And for New Hampshire, we only have 13 miles of coast. That doesn't sound like a whole lot, and it isn't, but it's a very active 13 miles. We have a lot of commercial fisheries that land in New Hampshire, uh, So, and we have a lobster fishery. We have a striped fast fishery, very similar to a lot of seacoast areas around the, around the eastern seaboard. So, And we're going to talk about those. We're going to talk about the industries, and we're going to talk about the things that affect you and us. And when you think about a natural resource, the ocean is such a broad natural resource for the United States of America, Canada, and around the world. And we need to really focus on that because it can give us a sustainable food source. We're now growing things in the ocean, uh, fish, uh, shellfish. So there's a lot of aquaculture that comes along with this. So, But I hope you sit back and enjoy episode five, Seacoast Warden, Graham Courtney. So you've always wanted to be a game warden. I said, no, it it really wasn't something that even crossed my mind until um, later on in life. I didn't start to be. I didn't start as a New Hampshire conservation officer till I was forty years old. So you know, I chased the skiing dream out west. I had a lot of. I tried a lot of different things, uh, but I always wanted to be outside. I always loved to hunt and, and fish. That gives a lot of people a lot of hope because I, I hear I have a lot of older guys come up to me and say, 
hey, how old do you have to be? You know, am I too old to be a game warden? And they're, you know, touching 40. And I I always say no, because we have no age requirements. Right. But, you know, and here you are, you know, age of 40 coming on. 40, yeah. I had, I received an associate's degree back in 1994 in uh, forestry from University of New Hampshire. And, you know, that's what was the requirement was an associate's degree, even though it was 20 years old, it was still enough. Still a good degree. Yeah, to get me in. And uh, I think, you know, I brought some different things I like to think to the table as having some life experience and it's worked out so far. They're, they're letting me keep working. So. Yeah, and, I, and I tell kids that associate's degree is so important, especially if you don't like school. You go do your two years, you get an associate's. You know, you get a piece of paper, you got a degree. If you go to a four-year school, you don't like it in two years, you got two years worth of credits, which still is, you know, it works for us. Right. But, you know, it's nice to have that piece of paper with an associate's. So I always say, hey, start there if you don't know, if you're, you're testing the waters. Or sometimes I say go to the military because they'll pay you to do it, you know. Right. So and then you get the same requirement to your military or go to a police department in two years if they don't take anything. So to build that foundation. But, uh, you know, I did an associate's degree as well and, uh, you know, didn't go on from there. But I traveled like you did. I went out and did the National Park Service thing across the country. So I think that's pretty important for those of that don't really like school or don't know or, you know, to get that piece of paper after two years. Yeah, and you, you're not, you know, people commit to uh, four-year degrees and, you know, they may, you know, you're 18. How do you know what you want to do the rest of your life at that age when you go to college? So I think some people are, are able to figure that out. I certainly wasn't one. So that associate's degree kept some doors open for me and, uh, you know, I kind of figured it out as I went. And then, you know, when... When it dawned on me, hey, New Hampshire fishing game, I could be outside. I could do what I love to hunt and fish. You know, I, I sowed my wild oats. I traveled. I did what I wanted. And now I want to settle here in New Hampshire, be close to my family. Um, and it's just been a great fit. Yeah, you're doing all those outdoor things. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, and it's, you know, as a sportsman, growing up as a sportsman, we always looked at game wardens. They were the top tier of sportsmen in my book. That's how I kind of looked at it, that these guys were the best of the best they were out there working with wildlife, with hunters and fishermen every day, and they had woods lore, and um, so it was a you know great sense of accomplishment for me to join the ranks of the game wardens of New Hampshire. Yeah, and that's something you built up to that point too, your whole life. You, you, that's what you're out in the outdoors building, you know, a resume so to speak to, right. to be a game warden. It just took you a little longer than his does some but took you a little know. longer to grow up that's all yeah no <laughs> and i don't think that's a bad thing necessarily i wish i no. took a little longer to grow up myself and you know instead of jumping right into this job right away i got an opportunity to travel and i really enjoyed it so but i would have liked to have done it a long a little longer so well, you're you know, you're you did it the other way where you start early and you're able to retire young enough where you can still enjoy life and be active and and go on a whole new adventure yeah and do you love the seacoast? Is that is that where you want it to be? Because you're, you're right on the coast of New Hampshire. It is. I grew up um, in coastal New Hampshire. I grew up in Southampton. My uncle was a commercial lobsterman. Um, we always had boats uh, on the tidal rivers and headed out to the ocean on a regular basis. So it's what I'm familiar with. I, I also feel it's where I'm the most effective because I know the community. I know the players. I know um, a little bit. I don't. I was never a commercial fisherman, but you know, I've always been around it. So... Seacoast is, I think, where I wanted to be because that's where my family is, but I think it's where I best serve the state because it's, you know, it's what I'm familiar with. And, that, and that's a unique niche because, you know, me being an inland guy, I I, I like the seacoast, I like visiting, but yeah, I get seasick. So <laughs> that that's a problem. <laughs> well, I do too, but not what I'm working because when we're working, we're always moving. 
You know yeah. what I mean? The boat's always moving. Where I, I can get seasick, but I don't tell many people that. No, no. <laughs> well, you will now, unfortunately. Yeah, but It's, it's yeah. all right, but you work through it. You know, just like anything, you can't let uh, a little something that, you know, that bothers you. And yeah, seasickness, is that the worst thing in the uh, world? When I was a kid, we'd go out deep sea fishing, and I would eat saltines all the way out to, to pack my stomach, my dad said. So I'd eat a sleeve of saltines, and it seemed to do the job, actually. I'd fish all day. I'd eat another sleeve on the way back. So. And it's mental, too, I think. You know, your dad told you that, and you believe that was going to help. And- uh, you're probably absolutely right, you know. Uh, how about those bands and stuff? You ever think those work? Is that a mental thing, too, the, the pressure bands? I've tried the bands. I, I brought a sailboat up from the, the Bahamas one year with my father, so I bought everything under the sun. I bought the bands. I bought the patches behind the ear. I didn't notice much with either of those, but there's a new product out there called zen trip it's a dissolvable tab that goes on your tongue um and i went out tuna fishing this year it was rolly i never felt a thing so i really believe in that zen trip product i bought as much as i could find at uh amazon.com or whatever did it affect you because i know like the other stuff i hate taking it because that makes me feel sick before i even get seasick the dramamine and stuff i can't I hate that stuff. It made me drowsy. That was the only thing I noticed, but I never even felt a tiny bit seasick. So I really huh. believe in it. Yeah. Well, that's, that's interesting. We need to. Uh, and what size uh, sailboat did you bring up from the Bahamas? <laughs> I, I, that's, that sounds like an adventure in itself. Yeah. My dad was always uh, an avid sailor and a friend of his kept a 52 foot Hinkley down in the Bahamas in the winter and would bring it back up to Massachusetts uh, in the summer. So one year after ski season was, was over, I was in Colorado. My dad called and said, hey, we need another, another deckhand. Uh, so I jumped on board and fished the whole way up. And, you know, we got in the inland waterway and went to all kinds of different anchorages. It was really great. It was just the same time as the perfect storm. So we got beat up between the Bahamas and the inland waterway and the, uh, and the Florida, Georgia area where you can tuck in shore. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, we lost gear off the boat we lost the autopilot uh we got really beat up my my dad uh, split his leg open but <laughs> there was no way to get any stitches or anything out there so it was uh it was an adventure uh when you say get beat up what kind of seas were you experiencing in that we were in probably 30 foot oh seas. my goodness uh, full harnesses you had to be strapped in and you know it was it was some scary stuff but you know looking back at it it was a great now I, it was pretty terrifying at the time but what a great memory what a great experience huh i I got to work on lake superior uh, for the park service uh, national apostle islands national lakeshore i got to run a 25 foot whaler out there and i got to into some seas and you'd go down into these these gullets and then climb the other side and i know i went to get out some biologists one time on one of the far islands and i I wanted to get them on the boat because i was scared to be by myself out there because it was it was gnarly and i'm like someone else has got to experience this because if, if i just tell them about it they're not going to believe it so you know i went on the least side of the island the least side of the island had eight foot seas on it so wow. we picked them up and uh went in and, and docking was a, a a challenge too but you know yeah that was a nice thing the park service you know trains you then they give you these big boats to run and stuff and they, they gave me some really good training out there but yeah it's the closest thing i've been and uh yeah that, that that was a quick trip i probably did it in you know four hours five hours and i can't imagine being hung in that for a long time because that's that's gnarly yeah probably three days and oh but we, once you got into the inland waterway now we're protected i, I think i did kiss the ground when we yeah uh, <laughs> i think i would have too. got to our anchorage for the first night and then the inland waterway is just basically a river that goes 
north to south inside the coast right and you're protected the whole way yeah so no uh you've been in seas like that with fishing game at all no we've gone out you know we won't we won't put ourselves at risk or put anyone that might have to come and assist us at risk in seas like that unless we have to if there's a life-saving measure you know we've been out in some eight ten footers where we've had boats that were broken down um that we've got distress calls we've assisted the coast guard but unless we have a reason for it uh we don't want to put it ourselves at risk and moreover put someone else at risk that might have to come and and save us if we got in trouble we've been in some some good seas we got a 28 foot safe boat handles the uh the swells really well it's fully sealed cabin so this upcoming concert season will be all about the boots and tecovis is your stop for the best in western style tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer including men's and women's boots apparel hats bags and more all Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecovis store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. There's been a few times where we've been a little bit... uh uh, you know dicey conditions but we don't put ourselves in that position unless there's a need to to do it yeah now the the lobster industry is pretty important for new hampshire isn't it or the whole east coast really it really is and as far as new hampshire with only 14 miles of coastline we have a strong commercial fishing community that's got a strong heritage in new hampshire there's guys that have been doing it generations in their family lobstering being our number one uh commercial fishing entity some of the other things like draggers and ground fishing boats are slowly fading out because of federal federal regulations and based on, you know, the, the fish stock is no longer there to sustain it. So lobstering is one that is held on. The Gulf of Maine, which New Hampshire waters are in, has a strong lobster population. We do, and because of our strict enforcement of the rules, that's part of the reason why the, the the fishery has stayed productive. So I think that's really important for us to get out there. And it's a big part of my job is lobster and the enforcement of the regulations because it's people's livelihood. And, you know, if we abuse it, it's going to be, you know, something that's not going to bounce back easily. Yeah. Are we seeing any diseases? I know there's some coming up the coast, Rhode Island experiences, because maybe that warm water interacts there, because that's as far south as the lobster goes as Rhode Island, right? pretty much there's not much and they, they're suffering down there they're suffering down in the cape the lobster numbers are down there's a shell disease that's coming through which basically looks like the shell is beginning to decay it doesn't affect the meat or the quality of the lobster but it's not appealing looking so if you go to a fancy restaurant you pay sixty dollars for a lobster dinner you don't want this lobster on your plate that's you know looks like it's the shell's decaying or mm. has a shell disease so it does affect the the value and we're seeing we only see it one in a hundred lobsters now i think last year we're seeing it more about one in five lobsters has some sign of this shell disease hmm and what what some of the regulations if a lobsterman's going to go out i mean i mean recreationally we have people that do it 
you know, sort of, and then we have commercial aspects of it. So, I mean, uh, and I would imagine more recreational problems on the coast than uh, commercial. It is. We got any New Hampshire resident can buy a five trap lobster license that allows them to fish up to and no more than five lobster traps. Um, the next license is a part-time commercial license. Again, any New Hampshire resident can buy a hundred trap part-time commercial. They can fish up to a hundred traps. And then we go into the full commercial 600 trap, 800 trap, 1200 trap licenses and federal licenses. So one of the main things that we enforce is the harvesting of female lobsters. So if a female egg bearing lobster is caught, it is required that any commercial fisherman notch the second flipper from the right in a V-shaped pattern. And that notch will stay in that lobster's tail for four to five years. So if that lobster is ever caught again, regardless of whether it's bearing eggs or not, it has to be immediately released into the water. So we're looking for V-notch female lobsters. We're looking for egg-bearing female lobsters. If anyone harvests an egg-bearing lobster, they're killing thousands of baby lobsters by taking that in. So, you know, first thing we do when we stop lobster boat, got lobsters on board, we're checking for V-notch, we're checking for egg-bearing, and we're checking for length. They can be... uh, they have to be a minimum of three and a quarter inches in state waters, and they can have a maximum of five inches. So it's kind of a slot limit. The oversized, the big lobsters over five inches, that's a breeder that that lobster um, is vital to the resource. We want those released. The ones under three and a quarter inches, they haven't reached reproductive age yet. So we want those lobsters to go back and be in the water long enough at least to go through a reproductive cycle or two to repopulate. So, you know, size and and egg bearing or v-notch females are the first thing and then gear i mean there's a lot of requirements on lobster gear there's sizes of the vents there's biodegradable parts if a lobster trap is lost the biodegradable parts are meant to disintegrate so that the lobsters can escape there's uh you know the boot the lines have to be of a sinking matter there's whale safe components to it in case a whale isn't entangled in and, it and all these restrictions are to either preserve the lobster or preserve sea life you know right. it's it's you know we're not doing it to be a pain in the butt we're doing it because yeah your gear gets lost and it disintegrates and the lobsters go free so we're not killing a bunch of lobsters exactly. every time you lose gear and vent holes the little ones get out the big ones stay in that's the theory behind that right right it's all about sustaining the resource so it, uh, it is a good feeling that you're maintaining a resource that's a lot of people's livelihood. I myself get the five-trap lobster license. I go out with my dad. We have a blast with it. Uh, we don't catch a whole lot of lobsters, but enough to have a lobster dinner every couple of weeks, and it's just a fun way to get on the water and, and get hands-on with it. Yeah, no, that, uh, absolutely. So, and, and people can see, too. I mean, if you're in a grocery store and you're looking on the lobster tank, you can see that V-notch in the tail. So I know I've had to make a few trips myself from northern New Hampshire to the seacoast to, to release a, you know, a veg notch or an egg bearing or something like that. Because I, I guess sometimes they must slip through the cracks if they end up in the grocery store. They can slip through the cracks. You might, I mean, we might check a federal boat that has, you know, 10,000 pounds of lobster on board. So, wow. And they'll fish overnight. So, you know, if a, if a boat with 10,000 pounds of lobster, which may be, you know, 8,000 lobsters, we're you know one v-notch may slip through Mm -hmm. and an egg bearing lobster that lobster may not be bearing eggs at the time it was caught oh yeah Um, they can drop eggs when they're in the tank at a grocery store so a lot of times we'll get lobsters that may not have been egg bearing at the time that they were caught but they've released those eggs while they've been at the store or in transit so that does happen every once in a while we get a call from the market basket come pick up a lobster it's uh had some eggs on it so 
Yeah. And besides the coastal stuff, I mean, you guys do inland stuff too. Well, we have the highest population of deer in the entire state is in southeastern New Hampshire. So um, hunting is as busy as it is anywhere else in the state. We have inland duck, coastal duck, and sea duck. So waterfowling is huge down our way. Big amount of turkeys. So, you, you know, we, we'll check. And big population of people too. Right. So and a high concentration of people, which can cause conflicts. Absolutely. Whether it's animals and people, hunters and people. Yeah, no, it's definitely so. You get a lot going on in a little area, so. Yeah, it's enough. It, ke- you know, it keeps us busy, and it keeps you surprised. You, you have one plan when you start the day, and it usually uh, turns in another direction before the day is over. Yeah, it's, it's an adventure every day being a game warden. That's what I, I kind of miss, you know. Yeah. You don't know what's going to happen. That's the beauty of the job. It's, it's ever-changing, and it keeps you on your toes, and you're always learning. You know, I'm five years in now, and I learn something new every day. Yeah. No, absolutely. No, nope. it's, it's a lot of fun. So if you had to pick out a, a, a top case that comes to your mind, you know, how long you been on? I've been over five years now. So, okay. a, you know, this past October was my five-year mark. So it's uh, gone by in the blink of an eye. It really has. It's unbelievable how much time has flown by. So you're like pushing 45 now, huh? 47 <laughs> as of December 30th. So you don't look it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I feel it. That's... Yeah. So... Uh, cases in the last five years that, that stand out in your mind is a really good case you know you're glad you did it you're glad you caught that guy um you know that, that type of thing yeah one case that that stands out and that i you know i'm proud of and it really gave me a sense of accomplishment because i was a new hire i was still in my trainee year you new hampshire fishing game you're on a probationary trainee for the first year um it was my first deer season i was working i had uh my training officer was Chris McKee, but I was at that point in my trainee year where I was pretty independent, checking with my trainee officer uh, every couple of days. But and the maturity you brought to to being a, a trainee—I mean, usually trainees are pretty young guys, and you, you're you're in your forties, so that that's pretty significant, I think. And I'm sure that was reflected. Yeah, they they treated me with respect. You know, I I got a, uh, probably cut loose on my own a little quicker. I did have previous law enforcement experience, so I you know. I was a police officer in a couple towns. I worked for the State Police Marine Patrol Division as well. So I had some law enforcement experience, um, and I wasn't completely green. So I was able to get out and work on my own a little quicker than some. I mean, it's all it's all when that person's ready. So, you know, our department does a great job of feeling out where you're at and, you know, giving that person that freedom or reeling in it a little bit if they need a little bit more training. So yeah, when I was a trainee, I was, you know, got a tip on a illegal bait pile went out to inspect it found blood drag marks uh uh, you know i was as excited as as an actual hunter that sees a deer i'm like this is great and i worked it really hard i sat in the bushes several nights near the the tree stand in the bait pile and uh was never you know weeks went by i wasn't able to locate this person i set up a game camera um at the site but it was hard for me to check the game camera because I didn't want to disturb it too much and I didn't want to get caught out there. So every week or so I'd check the camera um, and I was getting pictures of deer left and right. And then finally, you know, one day I'd get frustrated. I'm like, you know, I'm going to pull the game camera. I think this guy's abandoned the site. And sure enough there, I got a picture on the game camera of the guy carrying a five gallon bucket, dumping apples out. It was a really clear picture of his face. And so I was, did some research on houses in the area who had had hunting licenses. I found a gentleman that uh, his hunting license was suspended for a violation the previous year 
Um, I went to the DMV, pulled his driver's license photo. I had my guy, my suspect. So wow. I drafted uh, my first search warrant, gathered up five or six guys. I mean, there's nothing that makes you feel, uh, you know, more excited than six fishing game trucks rolling down a road and pulling into a driveway. It was, uh, it was just awesome. We all rolled out and rapped on the door. Of course, no one's home. <laughs> I always hate it when that happened. Uh, and then so you kicked down the door right we i kind of sat there I'm like, you know i'm pretty new so i'm like what now and yeah our yeah. one of our officers mark hensel who had a canine the dog's pulling hard towards the backyard and well, let's let's follow the dog and the dog led us right to the hunter who was in a tree stand hunting at the time so not only oh wow did we make that case we got him hunt you know actively hunting under suspension did he have any legal bait there too he had a little stuff out, not as not the pile that he not had out the, the woods, but he the had some grain yeah. sprinkled out, and uh, boy, was he surprised when we rolled up. Oh, that's that's pretty neat to, to find the homeowner out in a tree stand behind with a canine. Yeah, you know? with the canine. We pulled him out. We found a... a I, I was joking about deer. kicking the door in my whole 23 years career. We haven't kicked <laughs> in doors, so... No. Uh, I know we, sometimes people claim we kick in doors, but, but, but we knock, I've never done it. <laughs> you know, for a fishing game to get what's called a no-knock warrant, where you actually would kick a door down, be pretty hard-pressed to do yeah. that, but... Yeah. Uh, we ended up finding marijuana plants, uh, poached deer, all wow. kinds of stuff. So it was a great case. The, the gentleman, straightforward and honest, he owned up to everything. Um, we left there with, with a truck bed full of evidence. Wow. And it was just a you know, real sense of accomplishment where I was training a year. You're kind of trying to get your feet underneath you. And I yeah. felt like you know, today I, I feel like a game warrior. And you put a lot of work into it too. Huge amount of work. And you know, weeks go by and you kind of you lose that initial you know, excitement and it's, boy, this is work. So yeah, it's fun. It's an, it's a sense of accomplishment, but, uh, you know, people think we just run around the woods and, and play all day. A lot of these cases we put hours and hours of, of time into, you know, sitting in a, sitting underneath a bush until dark every night, you know, when you want to be home or you want to be, uh, in a tree stand yourself, you got to keep that drive going. Right. Cause timing is everything. Yeah. I mean, I know I've been on cases where I walk in and all of a sudden the guy's walking in with his bucket and drops apples there while I'm there. So, but then you, you got like that case, days, weeks. We worked one case weeks and weeks and weeks with cameras. It was a mile in. We had to hike a mile every night in the dark because when they weren't there, set up there and it was just bear baiting case, you know, and set up cameras and do a ton of work, you know, and, uh, and and then spring the trap, like you said. You know, we get all our evidence, and to the point where even we, I, I put a camera where I thought was so obvious it was just above the tree, but right where he was dumping his stuff, I got a picture of his face looking up at the camera, and and him dumping out the donuts. So I, it was just that it was phenomenal that we got that evidence. So and, and what's that? You know, during the interview when he says, "Oh, I have no idea what you're talking about," you know, and you slide the picture of him dumping the donuts out, him looking, you know, directly. He's like. How the heck did you get that picture? So it's that satellite, you know, spy stuff, you know. <laughs> yeah, and, and it is fun. I mean, it it can be a lot of work, but there's a there's a sense of satisfaction when you do make a good case. And Rewarding, yes. When you get that confession and that person say, says something like that, how'd you get that photo? Yeah. I think, yeah, I got it because I'm a game warden, and yeah. that's what we do. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think we make a difference because when they poach a deer, you know, if it's doe, they're taking, you know, a couple things out of the system. And not just for that year, but for years to come, too. And that's why we have a management system so we can manage populations. And, you know, that there's a lot more to it when it's game, I think, you know, other than, you know, you got stealing this or this and that. They're stealing, but they're not replacing. No. It, and it takes a long time to replace that. Exactly. And 
and there's you know certain people they get a almost a disease where they have to kill things and uh, you know being able to take a person that that just has no regard for the the life of an animal uh, you know bringing them to justice is a satisfying thing yeah no no doubt that's i, I think that's what's di- really different about our job is it's like the long term you know i you know i, I have the most respect for police departments and stuff but i think you know i think it just seems like the longer thing and the, the conservation aspect of it. So uh, not that we certainly need our police officers and our troopers, don't get me wrong, but I just, you know, and maybe it's part of us, the way that we're wired is, you know, that environmental aspect of it. And most of us, I know you are, Wayne, and I am, I'm an avid outdoorsman. I love to hunt. And mm. um, the, you know, someone that takes an illegal deer, they're taking that deer away from someone that could have gotten it following the rules. And, um, you know, Hey, the rules are there for a reason. We didn't make them. We're going to enforce them, and they're put there by people uh, that know a lot more about managing a resource. And you know, we're the boots on the ground that are out there. Yeah, and the support we get from the the good hunters is pretty awesome too, because they they want us out there doing that exact same thing, catching those guys that are cheating because they're stealing their wildlife. Exactly. It's uh, most times you you check people and they're happy to see you. They want to shake your hand. They want a photo. Um, you know, most of our hunters, it, there's no reason for them to not be happy that we're there because we're working for them. So mm. the people of New Hampshire, uh, the sportsmen are great. A lot of them, you know, they, they call you by name because you're the, you're the local warden. You may not remember them specifically, but they usually remember you. Right. And I, I think that makes an, a, an effect in the enforcement, too. Uh, you know, if, if they know you and stuff, if they get that chance, that opportunity to, to cheat a little, they think... I know Graham Courtney, you know, I don't know if I could look at him again if I, if I took that opportunity because I think we have, that, we have that effect on our communities by being part of them. So Definitely. You know, having that relationship with hunters and seeing them every now and then and, and shooting the, the, you know, the conversation that goes on because we usually spend a little time with them and we want to know about them. And, you know, it's heartfelt, to be honest with you, because I, I like to know who's out there hunting and, you know, I like to know who I'm working for. Exactly. I feel the same way. And we're part of the community and that's a great that's a great feeling as a warden you're you're part of the outdoors community you're also i mean we visit the schools we really try to um you know integrate ourselves into the community and you know work beyond just the sportsmen but introduce people that may have no idea about hunting and fishing to a little bit about what we do and to a little bit about the wildlife that we have here in new hampshire because we are just so spoiled to have the coast the mountains and everything in between and the diversity of wildlife and resources we have here, it's uh, pretty special. Yeah. A- any seacoast stories that stick out in your mind, uh, you know, uh, something related to that? I just, I always think of the coastal stuff and then, you know, uh, the, the, the maybe the funny stories or the unexpected stories or that type of thing, something that, you know. There are there are some characters down on the seacoast, you know, as there are ev- everywhere and we have our, you know, we have our characters down the seacoast and one of the things that coastal enforcement used to really focus on was the illegal harvesting of softshell clams. Uh, it could, it's a valuable resource. You can get good money uh, for clams. And so there used to be a lot of people that would illegally dig clams under the cover of darkness or in some of the back creeks and try to sell them. The, due to a lot of hard work and you know really hammering down uh, before my time, the guys really put an end to that. And then the value of the clams wasn't quite what they used to be. But every now and then we still get the report that some someone's out there doing it. And I got just that a couple of years ago. 
Now, there's a guy illegally digging clams. It wasn't clamming season. Uh, he was hiding in one of the back creeks. And so pretty easy to track. I followed his footprints in the sand to, uh, to locate him clamming. And Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV introduce myself uh, you got a clamming license nope you wear clamming's clothes nope and i could tell the guy was you know not too happy <laughs> to see me so i explained to him look we're gonna walk back to my truck we need to talk about this uh i'll carry your clamming fork because that could be pretty uh could be a intimidating weapon. weapon yep you carry the clams and uh you know he told me his first name's dave and so we're kind of going back to the the truck and you know he kind of kept looking over his shoulder at me and i'm getting a little bit squirrely feeling <laughs> I was like, so what's going to happen? I said, well, if you're decent, we'll handle it at the truck. You said that rabbit feeling, aren't you? <laughs> right. He said, what if I'm not decent? And with that, he threw his clams into the water and started running. Now, he's barefoot, shorts, no shirt, and here I am, fully geared up, heavy boots, gun belt, you know. Are you sinking into the clam pants. flats, the mud or anything, I'm, or is it solid? I'm slowly sinking into the mud, and, but I'm gaining on him. Yeah. He wasn't, uh, like he wasn't a very fast runner, so just when I got close to him he started into the water he's going to make a swim for it oh boy i'm not you know swimming with my gear and when i got close enough to the water i sank up to my knees in mud fell face first into the marsh mud which if anybody knows what low tide smells like so upon seeing that he's like oh now i got him he gets back on shore and starts hoofing it on shore again and now i'm a little bit uh po'd so (laughs) again i'm closing the distance on him and now i'm yelling at him that he's under arrest you know he's refusing to stop for me and uh he starts into a, another crossing a creek it's about three feet deep and that's where i caught up to him and i just kind of grabbed him in a bear hug from around the back i said knock it off dave you're under arrest and he started getting really squirmy um and i had the bright idea oh, well you know he's he's resisting arrest now i'm gonna give him a little hit of pepper spray try to uh mm. <laughs> so at that distance i i got a little on him but i got the bulk of it on myself Oh, boy. So he dove into the water, rinsed, quickly rinsed the pepper spray off by swimming <laughs> away. And all I could do was, you know, yell at him to stop as I could barely see. Yeah, you had your eyes closed yelling. And <laughs> so that was a little taste of humility. We ended up, you know, I, I put a call in. Was his real name PD. Dave? His real name was Dave. Okay, because that's uh, I was wondering. We, uh, I put a call in to, to the state police that I just deployed my pepper spray. I had a suspect flee on me into the Seabrook Marsh, and I could literally hear the sirens coming. Uh, a great job by Seabrook PD and the state police. We set up a perimeter, caught the guy in about 15 minutes with a state nice. police canine. Nice. And uh, I, it sticks in my mind. His last thing as we loaded him into the police car was, he's laughing. He said, super cop fell in the mud. <laughs> <laughs> so I still see him to this day. He holds no hard feelings. Neither do I. We laugh about it. And yeah. uh, that's one thing about, you know, people of the coastal community. Hey, you caught him. He said, I fought the law. The law won. We have a laugh about it. And yeah. I think he gave up his clamming career. After and that. I think that's a lot of being the game warden. Cause those guys that I caught wrote tickets to, you know, we're on a good relationship, you know, and it's just, Hey, you learned your lesson, yeah. you know, and move on. It's, it's not personal. No. You know, not personal unless you make it personal. That's, you know, it's just a job, you know, I want you to learn and when we move on. Right. We, so. we treat people with respect. Uh, even him, you know, I didn't, as tempting as I was to, you know, retaliate with that super cop fell in the mud comment, 
I just said, load them in. I'm going home to get some dry clothes. I'll yeah, because you, you can laugh about that later, too. Right. I'm going home tonight. You're going to be wearing an orange jumpsuit. That, that, so. That's 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 right. That's right. right. He, so. he went from a $93 ticket for clamming out a season to actually felony charges for, uh, you know, when he pushed me to, to get out of my grasp. Yeah. He, he laid hands on a uniform officer. Yeah, so. and we take that serious. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I, my career with had a couple of arrests the guy did 60 days in the can for touching me too so uh which was good after a knockdown drag out trial so yeah. but um yeah no i think we all take that I, and i think about the assaults on officers through my tenure and every time you know it's very very serious and we take it serious and we try to prosecute them to the ultimate of the law so so everybody takes it serious and says hey you know work with them they'll work with you but right. you know run or assault them and uh yeah it's a whole different story you're you're making a life-altering decision if you decide you're going to fight it out with the police. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. And like you said, those sirens are coming there. So there's, there's, there's more of us coming, you know, yeah. when it happens. So. And that's, you know, and that, that was really my first experience of, you know, not having been in law enforcement for a short period of time, how much the law enforcement community supports each other because these guys heard what had happened, uh, regardless of whether they were town police, state police, other game wardens came from all over, uh, you know, within a matter of 20 minutes, there were two other wardens there and there were probably 15 cops. So yeah. it was a really oh. nice feeling. You think, wow, these, these guys got my back. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I wish we had that up north. We do have it up north, but it'd be like two hours later, you'd hear <laughs> well, the sirens coming. Spread a little, yeah. spread a little <laughs> bit more up there. Uh, Anything you want to say in conclusion, Grant? I really appreciate you, you know, talking to me today and talking to everybody else and uh, sharing a little bit about what it's like to be a game warden, especially a coastal guy, because it's it's not all the same. We all have different experiences and the different places we live and work, and uh, I think it's it's pretty often, you know, to have those experiences. So I always enjoyed my time on the coast, but uh, I always want to give guys opportunities if there's something they want to say, because this is about, you know, your show too. You know, it's just not all mine. So. <laughs> Well, one thing I want to say, it was an honor to work with you um, and still work with you. I, I'm glad that you maintain your deputy status and, you know, you're here on your own time today working this sportsman show. And, uh, you know, it's an honor to wear the same uniform as guys like yourself and, you know, Jim Neal and Kevin Jordan, guys that are legends of the fishing game world. It really is a, a sense of honor and sense of pride. So I want to thank you for your guidance along the way and just tell people, hey, you know, when you see a game warden out there, unless you're doing something wrong, you got no reason to be nervous. Absolutely. We're, we're outdoorsmen. Uh, we're people just like you. So, you know, look forward to seeing anybody that's interested down the coast. If anybody's got any questions on recreational lobstering, recreational clamming, anything coastal involved, you know, reach out. Because as game wardens, we're not just here to uphold you to the laws. We're here to help you learn how to enjoy these resources. So, mm. Wardens are going to give you tips on fishing techniques. We're going to give you tips on deer hunting uh, stuff Absolutely. if that's one of our things that we're interested in. And we want to see new people get into it. Uh, I go to the Clam Flats on Saturday, and I look out. I seek out the people that seem to be struggling a little bit, and I share what what I know about about digging clams. And nice. So we're ambassadors of the sport. We're not just there to hand out tickets. V very well said. Thank, thank you very much for saying that, and very well said. So Thanks for having me. I know you promised to uh, buy me a steak and lobster dinner for uh, this, doing this podcast. Yeah. So I'm looking as long forward as to it's one of those ugly lobsters <laughs> with that growth on it, that's good. <laughs> thank you.
please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures, protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch.